Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. I'm delighted that my guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is one of the leading democratic voices on foreign policy and an old friend of mine and Australia's, Kurt Campbell. Kurt served as the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, where he is widely credited as a key architect of Washington's pivot to Asia under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. I first met Kurt at the Australian Ambassador's Residence on Cleveland Avenue in Washington in 2002, when Kurt was at CSIS and I was writing the feasibility study for the Lowy Institute. He provided excellent counsel to me, as he has to many Australians over the course of his career. He's a friend to many Aussies, including a number of PMs, and in 2013, Kurt was made an Officer of the Order of Australia. He also has had a long relationship with the Lowy Institute, having served as our inaugural Distinguished International Fellow in 2013, a position that has since been held by other individuals associated with the Democratic Party, including Jake Sullivan and Nick Burns. I'm delighted that he's agreed to speak with me today on the Director's Chair. Welcome, Kurt Campbell. Michael, it's a pleasure. It's an honor to be with you. Uh, anything I can do for the Lowy Institute, I'll do. I, I noted that since my inaugural, that you've just gone up with both stature and <laughs> capability in terms of the people that you've attracted, but it is to, <laughs> the, it's to your credit and to the Lowy Institute as well. So thank you again. All right, Kurt, let's start at the beginning. You're a proud Californian. You were born in 1957 yeah. in Fresno. Tell us a bit about your upbringing. It's a wonderful place to grow up. In the United States, when you say it's a wonderful place to grow up, that means you don't want to live there as an adult, but you want to grow up there. It's famous for its agriculture, its fig trees. Uh, it is at the in the basin, in the foot of the, uh, the Sierra Mountains or in the distance. And I remember I was a student. I studied music in, in Armenia, of all places, mm-hmm. which was then part of the former Soviet Union. And it was my first time really abroad. And, you know, the Armenians settled when they left that part of Central Asia at the turn of the last century. Many of them came to California and they settled there because they thought of it as kind of a little Armenia. So when I went abroad for the first time, expecting something to be completely different from where I grew up from, and I landed in a place, go, man, this is a lot like Fresno. And so, but it's it's a lovely place. Uh, not very many people thought about foreign policy or Asia. My closest brush with Asia was that there was the remnants of the Japanese Baseball League that sprung up after the Second World War. Uh, Japanese families and agriculture would play together and you'd see them, the women in kimonos and umbrellas and very elaborate Saturday and Sunday gatherings. And that's what I remember, just the first glimmerings of Asia as a kid. All right. So you had this interesting diversion early in your life. I think you did a a certificate in music and political philosophy from the University of Erevan in Soviet Armenia. Is that right? Yeah, you you can go anywhere with that. (laughs) It's like a Harvard MBA, you know? Well, what what was that all about? What was that about? How did that happen? I mean, I know it's like Fresno, but why? Well, at that time, the opportunity to study in the Soviet Union was a big deal. Hardly any Americans did. We were in a you know, very tense Cold War. Uh-huh. I was one of two or three Americans in the entire university there. So it was a great opportunity to 
to study music, to learn a little bit about completely living in a completely different culture. And it was tough, like, you know, relatively primitive and, you know, students from all over the third world, what we called then the third world. And I studied music, I studied violin, and it was one of those experiences where, I remember once I was looking around, and this is the kind of the martial way of studying the the violin. They, they beat you until you got better. And I looked around and I thought, God, of the people here, you know, there's 17 violinists on a good day. I'm number 15. And I realized <laughs> this is this is not what I want to do for my life. So I finished up, went back, applied for a you know fellowship, and then and then basically went off in a different direction. But that experience yeah. of living there. I really opened up my eyes and my life to, you know, different worlds, different realities. All right. So you went on to become a White House fellow. I think I'm right that mm-hmm. Joe Nye was critical in in your career. Is yeah. that right? Was it Joe who kind of brought you into the Asia embrace? So he had first helped me get on as a professor, young professor mm-hmm. at Harvard, Pre- pretty much against all the odds. I got chosen to stay on as a professor there. <laughs> and then I was a White House fellow at Treasury, and I, I'd done a variety of other things on trade uh, at both the White House and at the Treasury Department. And I was heading back to teach at Harvard, where I was a professor again. And Dr. Nye Joe had been appointed to the Pentagon, and he called me and said, look, why don't you come on over to the mm-hmm. Pentagon? And I been in the Navy and I'd done a variety of other things. And at that time, he was still thinking about what he would use me for. But a couple of weeks later, he said, look, I'd like you to work on Asia. And I'd really spent very little time as a naval officer. I had deployed and I'd been in Tokyo, outside of Tokyo, mm-hmm. as my one glancing experience. Mm-hmm. And I, I found it you know, wonderful and a little bit mysterious. But at the same time, never occurred to me, you know, that would be my life. So mm-hmm. it was... 1994. And I, you know, that Mark Twain, who, you know, you love America, Michael, and you Mm. know more about it than I do, has a wonderful quote about the two most important days of your life. One is the day you're born. And the other day is when you realize why you were born. And at that moment, I'd worked on the Cold War and I Mm. spoke Russian. But at that moment, when I was introduced to Asia, uh, my life completely changed. And I've been obsessed focused, mm-hmm. you know, engaged in all the debates of Asia now for almost 30 years. What an interesting story. And of course, you became really Mr. Asia in Washington. And of course, now you're the chief executive and the and the founder of, of the Asia Group. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about your role in the pivot, America's pivot to Asia. So I'm fast forwarding now to 2008. You're one of Hillary Clinton's most senior advisors. Mm -hmm. Barack Obama wins the presidency. He installs Hillary at Foggy Bottom. You become the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. This is the key position in the US government, really, when it comes to dealing with issues in our part of the world. And you are heavily involved in the pivot to Asia. So tell us when you look back on that period, how effective was the pivot? In retrospect, what did the administration get right? What did you get wrong? That's a that's a hard multifaceted question, Michael. I would say the original idea was a belief that the lion's share of the history of the 21st century was going to play out in Asia, which I think is well known to almost everyone except for maybe the United States. And we were basically profoundly overinvested strategically, militarily, politically, emotionally 
in the Middle East and South Asia, in places like Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. Now, I, I'm not saying that those aren't important places, but to have a dominant focus of our strategic approach in the world to those arenas and ignoring or basically under-investing in others, particularly in Asia, I thought was a massive strategic error. And so I think part of what I tried to do was make the argument that we needed to embark on a, what I thought would be multi-administration long set of initiatives, uh, retraining capabilities, redirecting our military capabilities, our strategic diplomatic focus Mm -hmm. more to the Asia Pacific region. And I think at an aspirational level, I think it was it was moderately effective, Mm -hmm. as is often the case with the United States. We raised some expectations that we underperformed on Mm -hmm. more generally. But I, I would also say that you know those early steps in any journey are fraught with challenges. And so I can tell you, I've been part of many government initiatives, Michael. Most of them, you launch them, they disappear, mm-hmm. and you are pointing to them constantly and trying to f- get people to focus on them. And they're, they're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. There are the very rare, very rare times where you launch something and it takes off to be bigger than you expected. Mm-hmm. And the pivot or the rebalance, and there was, you know, a big debate about what the right word was, basically was launched in a way that took off strategically, Mm. particularly in Asia. Mm. And I think as a result, a number of things that were not anticipated as much in advance came to fruition. So, for instance... I think, you know, when you when you use a word like the pivot, there is the pivot to, but then there's the pivot away from. Mm-hmm. I think it angered and humiliated some countries in the Middle East. I think probably some of that was inevitable. But I think more problematic, Michael, was I think there was a sense that we were, you know, kind of somehow turning away from Europe when, in fact, the idea is the endeavor that both the United States and Europe need to focus together each in our different ways, but also together on the drama that is playing out in Asia. Everything the United States has ever done of significance on the global stage has involved a partnership with Europe, and that has to be the case again. I think overall, there was a general recognition that despite the, you know, the challenges of making this initial step, mm-hmm. that that this was the direction of American foreign policy. And I think Despite the incredible friction, essentially there is some continuity between Obama and Trump. Now, the Trump team would say no, Mm. but of course there is with the Indo-Pacific concepts. And I would expect that the Biden team Mm. will distance themselves from certain things, but there will be some continuity in the focus as well. Well, let me ask you about Vice President Biden. To what extent did he buy into the pivot in that first term? To what extent does the president-elect accept your point that most of the action is going to happen in Asia? Because the caricature of Mr. Biden is that he's an Atlanticist, you know, he's happiest in in Europe, in in London, wherever. He, he Like John Kerry, perhaps, he may not have bought in to the idea that wealth and power is really shifting towards Asia, towards us. Is that fair or not? There is the, the Kissingerian concept in which 
you basically spend the capital that you accumulate, mm. you know, in your history as you as you practice in government. But I think misses the point that it is one of the most profound periods of learning as well. And I watched Vice President Biden, who is an extremely accomplished politician, mm. in, in addition to being a, you know, deeply avuncular, loyal, engaged person, he's very skilled. And I watched him, I traveled with him extensively when he was vice president through Asia. And I watched him learn and 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 come to terms with what was happening in Asia and China and through mm. all of our allied countries. And so I think that critique is frankly outdated. And I would expect from his speeches, from his team, from the conversations that I've had with him, mm that he intends to make Asia a prime focus of his overarching strategic approach to the world. And that he intends to invest much more heavily going forward. And so I think, you know, I think he accepted the rebalance or pivot. I think he thought that was the right thing. He worked hard on, you know, the relationship he developed with then Vice President Mm -hmm, Xi. mm then spent a lot of time with the allies and other countries uh, around the Asia Pacific region. So I think Asian friends are going to be reassured that the United States is going to continue with a much stronger focus on the Asia Pacific region. All right. I want to come back in a minute and talk quite a bit about China, but let me just pause on the president-elect and his administration for for a Mm -hmm. second. Let me ask you about his early top foreign policy and national security appointments, in particular our mutual friend and your successor as the Lowy Distinguished Fellow, Jake Sullivan, but also his nominee for Secretary of State, Tony Blinken. You've known these gentlemen for a long time. Tell us about them. I've known each for a long time. I've known Tony for 30 years. He's got parent to one of my children. I know he and his wife. I was in his wedding. Uh, I helped introduce Jake to his wife. Mm-hmm. I worked with Jake at the State Department. So these are people that I've not only worked with, but I know personally, and I have extraordinarily high regard for. Both have just remarkable skills. So Tony is about the steadiest person mm-hmm. uh, I've ever worked with. Very, very uh, deliberate, reassuring, has a clear mindset. He's very much about managing effectively with the allies. He had to put sort of a moniker, Mm -hmm. alliance manager. So he comes out of that that school of thought that believes that working well with your friends makes every problem easier. He cut his teeth primarily in Europe, but when he was deputy secretary, he worked a lot with Asia, came to love it, enjoy it, had a very strong team of supporters when he's deputy secretary. Jake is frighteningly accomplished. You worked with him, so you know what I'm saying. Came late, relatively in his career to Asia, but he's one of those guys that can pick up on topics and issues faster than anyone else and has been remarkably successful at integrating regions and concepts. He's very strategic about trying to relink the rationale for American foreign policy Mm -hmm. to American domestic purpose. And so his whole concept about an American foreign policy that is about the American middle class is central to, I think, why he has taken the positions that he's taken. During the Biden campaign, Michael, he was primarily responsible for the domestic agenda. Mm -hmm. That's how 
I mean, it's extraordinarily rare. It's like changing mm. instruments or events in the Olympics. Mm. He not only designed what we call Build Back Better for the mm. vice president, but then he has now taken the central role at the White House as the head of the National Security Council. He's young, tireless, uh, extraordinarily capable. I think what's important is that the people that he has chosen to date all know each other. They will operate as a team. This is not so much team of rivals, but more team of friends. Now, there are clear advantages of that, but there are some things you have to be watchful for as well. And I think the vice president Mm -hmm. will understand that more generally. But it's a strong team. They don't have the big, you know, kind of global names Mm -hmm. that previous administrations have had. But I, I think they more than make up with it with competence, with kind of behind the scenes experience and, you know, a high degree of familiarity with the issues that they're going to confront. Mm. Well, after the last four years, competence is very welcome. Let me ask you just quickly about one more name, Michelle Flournoy. We don't yet know whether Michelle, who's a very old collaborator and colleague and friend of yours, will emerge as Secretary of Defense. But let me just ask you, what kind of sec def would Michelle Flournoy make? The best. I mean, I just, I can't think of anyone who's better positioned, you know, we'll know in the next couple of days. I know she's very much in the mix. Mm -hmm. This is one of the most challenging periods. You're not sure whether you're going to be chosen or picked and you feel, you know, a little bit Mm self-conscious. Everyone is in that uh, position in Washington Mm. right now. Let me ask you just one question about that. It is this weird roulette game that you see and that's almost unique to the United States because, for example, Mm -hmm. in a parliamentary system, the executive positions are drawn uh, from parliamentarians. So it's a limited pool. You know who's there. The cream will usually rise to the top. In the US system, the president can choose almost anyone. And so there is an element of randomness and certainly drama to it. You're no stranger to it. Your name often appears in bold, as does your wife, Lael Brainard. What is it like to be in the middle of that roulette game? How is politics played? Just just give us a sense of what it's like. Deep down, it's hard and it, it, it is challenging. And, and for people who really, you know, that this is what they want to do, it's precarious. I would say, I think Vice President Biden, what's interesting about this transition, first of all, it's contested in a mm-hmm. way. I, I don't I don't think mm-hmm. Australian friends understand that one party, the dominant, you know, party that's been in power, most of the senior officials refuse to acknowledge the reality. It's just reality mm-hmm. that Vice President Biden is the next president of the United States. So, you know, there is something very unusual happening with the Republican Party that I, I think you have you have some indications of a similar phenomena in Australia, but, you know, playing out differently. But that transition has been very difficult and made quite uneven. At the same time, I think, you know, the while the Republican Party of the United States is getting narrow and narrower in, in some respects, the Democratic Party is getting broader. And so there are a lot of folks mm-hmm. that want to be acknowledged. And mm. so you know, you want different groups and different uh, ideologies, you know, across the spectrum of the Democratic Party represented. And that process is challenging. And I think President like Biden and his team have done a good job at, you know, combination of loyalists, uh, 
experts, uh, distinguished individuals across the board. And I think you'll see an administration in the, you know, the mm-hmm. office of the president and the broader cabinet looking, as we say in the United States, more like America. The challenge will be, I think at his core, Michael, you know, President-elect Biden is bipartisan. And the question will be, is mm. bipartisanship possible in this day and age? Mm. And President-elect Biden is determined. Who He has some of his best relationship were with Republicans, but that was a different era. Mm. And I'm not sure the modern Republican Party really is thinking or acting on bipartisanship. It's a different beast. So we're going to have to see whether some of the lions of the Senate are going to be prepared to find common cause with uh, the president-elect. And that will be on issues like confirmation, whether there will be another you know, economic package mm-hmm. to, I mean, it, it would be impossible to describe to Australian friends what it's like in the United States right now. We are on the verge of a massive increase in pandemic cases mm. and you know, with untold economic dislocation. So the challenges are just gonna be enormous for the president and, and it will be hard to tackle them without some degree of bipartisanship with uh, Republican mm. friends. Well, fingers crossed. All right, let me come to China and let me start mm-hmm. first of all, US relations with China. You were good yeah. enough to invite me to speak at your China forum at the University of California, San Diego in January, which was really an incredible event at which you gathered many of America's leading foreign policy makers, a number of people who will be very central to the Biden administration, including Jake and Michelle and Avril Haines and Julie Smith and Larry Summers and others, but also on the Republican side. When you squint your eyes, how do you think the Biden administration will balance cooperation with China on issues like climate change and pandemics that matter to America, matter to the Democratic Party, against the need, the imperative to compete more effectively with Beijing? The central agreement in a bipartisan sense in the United States is that for us to be more effective internationally, particularly uh, with relation to uh, competition with China, we've got to be more effective domestically. So I think you're going to see some general agreement on investments in technology, in public-private partnerships. I think you'll see some of that. And I believe that there will be some bipartisan spirit in those arenas. And I, I intend to do everything I can to support that more generally. I do think, Michael, we, we often toss off that we have to you know, compete where we must cooperate where we can. Mm-hmm. You know, it turns out that that mix and that balancing act and combining those two things is extraordinarily difficult. And so I think anyone who believes that that mixture will be uh, precise and easy to like, like a measuring cup is wrong. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be very difficult. I think there will be times where we will veer into the boundaries on the highway. I think we will have incidents. What's striking about the U.S.-China relationship is unlike the U.S.-Soviet relationship, we do not have the kinds of guardrails that would help us in the event of a crisis of inadvertence or an incident or accident. And building those, I think, are going to be important. You need a partner to build with those. China has always been resistant for a variety of reasons to do that. Some of it is is bureaucratic. Some of it is not wanting the United States to view it as an enemy. Some of it is just 
a fear that with these capabilities uh, that the United States would feel more comfortable operating in areas close to Chinese territory. I think we're going to have to work carefully on those issues. There are going to be a number of things that I think we're going to reevaluate. Reciprocity in you know education and journalism. Uh, you know China's infinitely number more journalists in the United States. We can't get people with you know accredited in Beijing right now. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to have to think more carefully in in that arena. But I think more importantly is going to be the what are the grounds for competition, Michael? And so the Soviet Union, that competition was largely military. This time around, the competition is going to be in really high stakes technology, 5G, quantum computing, human biology, you know, robotics. You can go down the list and and finding the right criteria and parameters for when we can work together and when we would say, look, those are areas that are off limits from investment is going to be, you know, a decade long endeavor. And so I think the framework is relatively clear in terms of understanding. It is the application Mm -hmm. of the specifics that is going to be difficult. And anyone who says, oh yeah, we're going to find that that balance easily. I, I think that's oversimplifying what will be a very challenging way forward. If there is any country, though, that understands the potential of being able to mix such things, it's China. So even though it's more alien to us, we've usually had countries that fall in the either friend Mm -hmm. or enemy category. China, I think, just basically is extraordinarily comfortable operating in an environment where one week you're happy and working together, the next week you're in the doghouse, as Australia knows probably better than anyone else. Well, let's come to that because you mentioned there'll be incidents in the US-China relationship and we're, we're living through a little incident at the moment in the Australia-China relationship. As you know, a fake illustration this week was posted from an official Chinese diplomatic account showing an Australian Special Forces soldier holding a knife to the throat of an Afghan child. The Australian PM came out forcefully against that fake tweet. He demanded an apology. That has not been forthcoming, and the Chinese continue to respond, uh, accusing Mr Morrison of losing his diplomatic manners and describing Australia as a warhound of the United States. So let me just ask you, what are your observations about how both China and Australia are playing this issue? You know, it's interesting, uh, Michael, we, we ta- you and I have talked a lot about this over the years and, you know, having, you know, been in d- strategic dialogues with Australia for almost 30 years now mm-hmm. and a, a chief topic we, we've talked about, you know, we talk a lot about Indonesia, Southeast Asia, but China is usually at the, near the top of the list until relatively recently. Most of the interactions have been about a little bit of Australian unease that the United States is going to be too hard on mm-hmm. China and that we don't understand like how we've got to have a balanced relationship and how important the economics are and that Australia know a lot about how to manage the relationship, ask us for input and advice. I think for the first time in the last couple of years, I've sensed a sort of a different approach, a recognition that, you know, this is a more complicated relationship than just the exporters would would have you believe. And that China had interfered in ways that were just unacceptable to Australia. To an outside eye, I have to say, I'm relatively admiring of Australia standing up and saying, look, this is this is no go for us. 
the things that you've done inside, you know, with, you know, Chinese mm-hmm. students and others are unacceptable from our perspective. At the same time, China is a tough country to pick a fight with when you have areas of reliance, because what we have seen, we've not seen it yet in the United States, but almost every other country, Korea, the Philippines, Vietnam, Japan, have all faced really substantial economic retributions. And that's what's happening really in Australia now. And I think that that even more could be ramped up beyond barley and wine and Mm -hmm. and such. And and I think, you know, they are not above really making a country feel some pain uh, accordingly. My best sense is that Australia and China both understand, both deeply understand that this is unhelpful for each of them. Mm -hmm. For China, when you want to make a case to anyone how difficult it is to work with China under Xi Jinping and a different China than perhaps China of the past, case study number one is really not wolf war diplomacy in Europe. It's Australia because Australia is and remains, Michael, among the most respected countries that everyone wants on the team, right? And the fact that China is going after Australia for mm-hmm. the simple suggestion of let's understand more about COVID, I think uh, really underscores some of the shrillness and the assertiveness in the Chinese approach more generally. And I think for Australia, they're basically saying, look, let's level set. We, we want a good relationship economically and politically. Both of us have come to terms about the limits of the relationship. Let's back off from the precipice and let's reset. And I think both countries understand that it's in their best interests. My guess is, Michael, that neither are going to admit missteps or problems. And what we will likely see is a period of several months, maybe coming up on a year of kind of an interregnum. And then we'll just, you'll see both countries shift quietly into a new reality of lesser uh, warmth, continuing economic engagement, and some wariness. That would be my guess. Kurt, we're almost out of time. Let me ask you just a couple more questions, if I can. First of all, on the US-Australia bilateral relationship. How would you assess the relations that have existed between the Trump administration and the Australian government? How have we managed that? And secondly, how do you think the Biden administration will get on with the Australian government? What are the potential areas of agreement and disagreement? Look, there's no doubt that we're going to get on. And I'm, I'm confident of that. I think it'll play out well over the course of the next several months. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to learn for the incoming team to figure out what's happened, how the framework and the experience of the last four years has reshaped views across the region, including in Australia. So I think it's going to be very important for the United States to do something that it's not very good at, which is listen, really listen to allies and friends as they explain what they're thinking about, what they would like to see from the United States how to think about sort of next steps in the region, whether it's architecture, trade, a very hard issue, or uh, strategic engagement uh, overall. I think the Morrison government did extraordinarily well with the Trump administration. I would say basically Abe and uh, Morrison are two of the most effective leaders in terms of engaging a challenging and at times mercurial uh, president. 
My guess is because Australia is a deeply bipartisan relationship that the team will pivot again, we come back Mm -hmm. fairly nicely. There are a few things to watch for though, however. I think, you know, the only place really left on the planet other than a few places in the Middle East that there really is, you know, climate skepticism is in Australia. Mm And I worry about that because mm-hmm. Biden has really made this the watchword of his administration, mm-hmm. as he should. This is an existential issue. And so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to find common cause with Australian friends mm-hmm. on sort of the way forward. But, but you know, time will tell. On China, there will be a lot of familiarity and common ground, I think, on architecture on American strategic engagement, on the importance of the Pacific. I think Australia will push us on trade. And look, you got to have a vision and you got to wave forward. I think that will be helpful. I think the mateship and familiar faces will help. The fact that Morrison personally and, you know, they seem to share certain approaches with Trump will have no bearing. You know, there are lots of leaders that did well with both Trump and Obama. Mm-hmm leaders like Prime Minister Abe. And I, I I fully expect that that to be the case. That's more a tribute to Australian skill in managing and effectively the United States, which has been on display for decades. All right. Last question. I want to finish on Donald Trump. I only wanted to ask you mm-hmm. one question on President Trump, because I think the less said about this president, the better. It's been a very difficult four years for my American friends and indeed for friends of America like me. You and I have spoken about how you and your family and your daughters in particular have reacted to the Trump administration, uh, President Trump's uh, attitudes to women, the Black Lives Matter, all the events of the last few months. Tell us, what has it been like living through this period, but also how does it feel now that what President Biden has called this grim era is nearly behind us? So can I just say, Michael, it would be my fervent hope that what you're describing would come to pass, but I'm not sure that's going to be the case. So even though Trump himself is going to be out of office, I think Trumpism is likely to be with us for a considerable period of time. And I am worried about it and concerned about it. And the fact that Let's not forget, even though President-elect Biden got nearly 80 million votes, right behind him, the largest number that any Republican candidate has ever won is uh, President Trump. Huge numbers of people in the United States think that the election was stolen from him and believe a lot of things that I would find to be very troubling. And I, I think the United States is divided. And I believe that there will be elements of Trumpism that will continue, particularly in the Republican Party. Populist, nativist, deeply suspicious about elites, about the world, about trade, about you name it. And, and, and quite hostile to Democrats and the idea of bipartisanship. Mm-hmm. So you can be fooled if you're an Australian, you come to Washington, and you deal with basically the remnants of the old Republican Party, you know, kind of what we call the Oldsmobile mm. of you know, kind of, you know, recognizable pro-trade, pro-defense, you know, reliable, steady, rich Armitage. You, you know, we know hundreds of them, mm. admire them greatly. That's not the new Republican Party. And the new Republican Party 
is still forming and they're going to have to figure out where they are after uh, President Trump. But it's not clear how they'll feel about trade, about alliances. Remember, President Trump thought deeply about pulling our forces out of Asia without a peep mm. from many of these you know, Republican leaders. So I, I think that there's still uh, a lot to play out. And it would be, I think, mistaken for Australian friends to think about this period as just being over. It is not. Mm. And there are things that America has to work through. And I, for one, would say that President Trump is likely to go down in history as one of the most impactful leaders uh, of our country. And, you know, you can be impactful in a lot of different ways and maybe not the ways we like, but I, I do not believe he will be easily forgotten. I do want to say one last thing, Michael. I just, I, it's important for Australian friends to know this. Despite the challenges that we have domestically, we have been through many periods like this. Probably no one better understands this than you as a, a chronicler, a, a historian of the United States. Each time that we've faced severe criticisms about decline and retreat, whether it be in Vietnam or the Asian economic crisis or the more recent global economic crisis and now the pandemic, many countries start to count us out. Mm. I would just say that those countries and those people that have bet against us have often turned out to be wrong, that the United States has hidden reserves and resources and ability to reinvent ourselves in ways that are remarkable. And those are still very much intact. And I fully expect that the road to a vigorous revival of American enthusiasm and optimism is going to play out in the Asia Pacific region. Kurt, I'm delighted we've ended this conversation on an optimistic note. Let me just say yeah. it's been a lot of fun hearing about your journey from Fresno to Soviet <laughs> Armenia to Washington. <laughs> I'm delighted that you made a personal pivot from Europe to Asia before you helped yeah. America make a national pivot to Asia. I want to thank you for your friendship to Australia over a long period of time. I'm going to put a couple of bottles of Australian wine in the post to you because- I'll take them. I'll drink them. Just because our Chinese friends are denying it to themselves doesn't mean that you shouldn't have it. So, so, look, <laughs> so look out for that. And thank you, Kurt Campbell, for agreeing to speak speak with me today on the director's chair. Great. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove, with production assistance from Madeline Neist. Thanks for listening and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair.